We'll start today with a few words of reflection. And uh, I was asked, or it was a suggestion for me to talk about loneliness. And of course, loneliness is something I imagine all of us have experienced at one time or another. I, I find it hard to imagine going through human life without having experienced loneliness at some point. So, and, and for some, especially during a pandemic, I think people have been um, experiencing, you know, some kind of sense of separation, maybe isolation. And loneliness comes on oftentimes in a big way when we have big changes in our life. Maybe something central to our life has fallen apart. Maybe we've lost a friend or there's a breakup of some kind or um, there can be any number of reasons why we might experience more loneliness than usual. And for some people, some of us, you know, we might experience loneliness on a regular basis. And so it's, it's a topic worth exploring. When we look to what the Buddha says about loneliness, we really don't find much in regard to the feeling of sadness when we're alone, which is you know, kind of the first definition in our English dictionaries for loneliness. It's that feeling of sadness. There is another definition, which is um, just being alone. And in solitude or, you know, that, that kind of idea. And that one we see in the suttas a lot. Um, if you go from English to Pali, then you see a few different words in Pali that can be translated into lonely or loneliness. But they all have that other meaning of, you know, being alone. And it's really something that's often praised by the Buddha, spending time alone. But I think it's interesting to consider what's the difference in being alone and being lonely. And of course, the Buddha would have said that that feeling of feeling sad that we don't have um, friends or companions around, or we even when we're with other people, sometimes we can feel lonely, so disconnected from the people around us. And uh, that can even be when you're in a close relationship, if you're really not getting along, it can feel quite lonely. At times in my life, I felt like it was um, a worse kind of loneliness when you're together with other people than, than if you're feeling lonely alone. <laughs> you know, It's actually harder, I think. And so we want to know how to apply the Dhamma to those experiences. And there are a few different ways we can do it. So the first one that comes to my mind is that the Buddha would, I'm sure, classify that feeling along with other feelings that would be considered dukkha, you know, like sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. So sadness is a form of, of dukkha. And one question we can ask ourselves is, you know, is, is this leading to peace or not? And this is the way the Buddha would think about things, you know, kind of. And so we want to be able to take care of this emotional state when it, when it comes. And one way to do that is like the classic way, using the first three noble truths. So can we feel sad? We feel lonely. We can, we can turn towards it. And I feel like, so it requires mindfulness, first of all, that we know what we're feeling. And this is a big step, actually, <laughs> to know what we're feeling. And then to recognize it and then to reflect on how can I take care of this state or how do I take care of my mind in this state? 
And I think it's really wise to bring a lot of kindness to it. So a few people mentioned this morning about practicing metta and metta for ourselves. And when there's that kind of feeling of being alone and sad, we can, first of all, be kind to ourselves in that feeling, in that state. And then noticing, you know, like the Buddha said, a feeling is just a feeling. This feeling of loneliness comes, it goes. And, you know, um, we can observe that, just observing how it feels. And then we can notice what kinds of thoughts feed the loneliness. Because usually we can't keep a feeling going unless we have thoughts that feed it. And this is true of other feelings too that are not um, bringing us closer to peace and happiness. In fact, any, any feelings can be fed by thoughts. <clears throat> so what kinds of thoughts are coming to mind? And this, again, again requires mindfulness and wisdom. So if we focus on being alone and feeling alone and maybe what we've lost, like it wasn't like this in the past, and I wish I could have what's back in the, you know, from the past. We've talked about this somewhat before in this group, you know, then we're feeding that feeling. But we also don't want to suppress the feeling and just cover it over, you know, like, oh no, I'm okay. We're just going to shove that down and think about something else, do something else. I mean, sometimes that's a skillful means. If we've got some really strong feelings, that might be the first, or I don't know, not first. It might be one thing that we might do temporarily to just get through the, the sharpest part of it. Uh, you know, listen to something, um, get some entertainment, you know, but it's, it's not a, it's not a method that we would want to use as our main coping mechanism. I mean, I've seen people do it. You may know people who just have to have the TV on the radio. It used to be radio. I don't know. Do people still listen to radio? (laughs) Anyway, you know, have something kind of like there playing. Um, but as practitioners, what we want to do is understand our mind, not just try to get through life, um, get through this situation, but to also really understand where do these feelings come from? What am I really thinking that, that perpetuates this? Because there are other ways to look at the experience we're having. Like one thing we can do when we're alone is think, wow, what's the upside of being alone? You know, I don't have um, people disrupting me. I don't have to check in with people about what to do next. And, you know, we might see the, the advantages of that. We might look at the advantages of it. And this is just like, how do we think, you know, like, when we think, when we're sad about being alone, are we thinking like maybe there is some reflection on our character? Maybe nobody wants to be with me. If we think like that, we're really gonna drag ourselves down. And of course, it's probably not true. I mean, so much of what we think isn't really true, fully true. true. There may be instances that are are like the way we think, but we generalize to a point where we can make ourselves feel really bad, but it's not that way, totally. So we look for the positive things in our, in our experience, whatever that experience is at the time. And sometimes these experiences are really hard. I mean, I've had a few times in my life where it feels like, you know, everything's falling apart at once. Um, you're just standing there at the edge of this crater that's like everything's gone. And 
one thing we can learn from those experiences is that there is then a space within which to create. And if we can come to it that way, so what do I want to create in this space? Who do I want to bring into this space? How do I want to be in relation to my, myself in this, in this space? What do I want to cultivate? And then another way to look is, you know, who can I help from this space? You know, how is it that I can use my time and my energy for good from this place? So these are a few ways to really look at um, how it might, how we might shift um, or reframe the story when we're feeling lonely. We can, of course, seek out good spiritual friends and companions. Um, fortunately, nowadays, we have a lot of communication methods. And the Buddha really praised spiritual friendship. I think it's always kind of interesting to see the Buddha praise solitude and being alone. And he also praised being together with good companions on the path. And so we can look to like, how, how do I want to learn how to be by myself happily? How can I learn how to be my best friend? How can I learn how to find and, and have connection with people who are wise and kind and, um, you know, really supportive. And then we can, you know, like in that, idea of um, learning how to be my best friend, I can also learn how to embrace solitude itself. And this is, this is where we deepen our samadhi and our insight. And we find out that those feelings of sadness and loneliness start to transition or disappear. Pretty soon we look forward to having time by ourselves. There's a very excellent talk by Ajahn Brahm on loneliness he gave back in 2004, five, 2005, I think. If you just um, get on YouTube and type even just Ajahn and loneliness, that one will come up. <laughs> but if you type Ajahn Brahm, you'll certainly find it. You know, he has a very um, irrepressibly positive attitude about life, regardless of what's happening to us. And when you look at loneliness or you look at illness or any anything, um, you know, you can really kind of see the same approach. Find what's good in it. Realize it's a part of this human experience that's, um, you know, worth embracing in a certain way, in a way that's supportive towards our peace and well being. I want to go back a little bit to this idea of feeding our feelings. And one example I have in my mind is of someone that I knew really well back in the small town where I lived. And um, she had a, um, a really difficult relationship with one of her family members. And there was kind of a rivalry between them. So this, this family member was, you know, said a lot of things that the, the woman I knew found hurtful. There were put downs and, you know, kind of very competitive, like I said. And one of the things that was happening in this, in this woman's life was 
but she she lived on a farm and this when they bought the farm they moved into this old farmhouse and it was just really a shack really a mess she worked really hard to i know this isn't going to be lisa's experience <laughs> but you know she worked really really hard to like make this place livable get the rodents out of it you know patch up the walls and paint the floor of the porch that sloped so bad you felt like you were going to kind of fall off <laughs> you know things like that and 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 make it make it clean and and nice but through the decades she always wished she could have a new house and finally they got to a point where they could build a new house on the farm and this this competitive relative um, was coming over for some kind of, you know, family gathering. And she comes in and she says, oh, yeah, I went over to your new house and looked all around it while it was being built. And this lady felt so angry. She felt almost kind of violated, you know, like it's kind of an interesting thing. It's like it's not like the house was finished enough to have doors and everything. A person just could walk through the build the framing of it probably or something but for her it was really uh it really hurt it really made her angry and she thought about that incident and of course many others from the history right of interactions with this relative and she just built it up over and over and over in her mind really feeding that feeling of being somehow violated by this incident. And one time later she said, yeah, this, this relative almost killed me. Now this is, you know, looking at this from the Dhamma, it's like, <clears throat> we fuel our own suffering. And it's important to know how we do it, what the specific thoughts are that keep these negative feelings going, bring them back over and over again, and how we might change, change that, um, and how we can, more than just changing the thoughts so it's not just a psychological reframing either that's part of it but also the practice itself you know allowing our mind to become still reflecting on the dhamma seeing the beauty in keeping precepts in being generous in being in in um bringing about kindness and compassion in our mind, in our heart. And that joy that we talk about that has so many kind of different aspects, you know, when you, like, uh, like we just heard this morning, joy as, as a, um, an element, um, a factor on the path to awakening, that would be PT, the joy of being happy for other people's good fortune and our own good fortune, medita, you know, and then there's, there's other ways of pamoja, you know, the happiness of realizing, yes, there is a way out of suffering to have faith. And, you know, so it, when we, when we turn our attention to these things, it's not just a, a changing of our behaviors or change of the way we orient ourselves towards life, changing our relationship to life and to life circumstances. And the, the, what it cultivates, what it makes possible is insight into the nature of reality. And when we bring our, our wisdom, what's come through insight, our direct experience of Dhamma, into these situations, they disintegrate. Those feelings disintegrate. And when we see feeling as just feeling, we also don't have to make them disintegrate because we can bear with them. When we start to think, this is just a feeling, 
noticing how it feels in our body, and we can bear with it. We can just let it run its course. So it's, it's this kind of interesting combination, I think, of being mindful and kind to ourselves, willing to accept whatever we feel and not beat ourselves up for it or come to some kind of conclusion about ourselves for having the feelings we have. Having that, that care, that love for ourselves, learning how to, to observe our thinking and choose what we want to think. Setting aside, once we understand someone and the way that they behave, once we understand um, the circumstances that we don't have to keep running over them and making that um, groove deeper. Instead, we can just see it with wisdom and step back and really look for what's good in our situation, look for what's beneficial in this circumstance and see if we can understand like, where does the Dhamma show up in my life right now with regard to this? And then notice the results. So the, the Buddha was like, always encouraging us to notice the results. Even when you have some knowledge or insight arise, the Buddha is like, then you, you look at that and you know that <clears throat> insight has arisen. You look at it and you know that this has changed. Something's happened in my mind, my heart. It's changed. So you always, you always have that acknowledgement, that looking at what's arisen and what, and what, is, um, what has occurred. And then we'll see, oh, yeah. When I used to be in this kind of situation, these are the feelings that I would experience. These are the methods I would use to get through it. But now I see it differently. Maybe I see it as an opportunity for something. Maybe I see that I can observe this without being caught up in it. I can observe this process that my mind is going through detached and kind. So now I would really like to invite you to tell me what you're thinking. If you have any thoughts or comments or questions about this. Yes, Carrie. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I just wanted to say that last week I was on a workshop with Kristen Neff on self-compassion mm -hmm. and um, which is why I wasn't able to join you and um, she emphasized again how much of our reactions are part of our biology. And I'm, so I'm wondering, loneliness, if we're social animals, which I think humans are actually social animals, for me, I'm just finding it so helpful to notice, oh, this is actually part of my physiology to, you know, there's this need to be around others. And, and I'm finding it helpful now after that workshop to be able to then turn a little self-compassion and say, yeah, this is, this is hard. My body really needs to be with others. And I don't have that now. So I just wanted to add that because I'm just finding instinct in biology as, as an aspect is very, very helpful for holding what the feelings that come up in my mind because they're often triggered by our biology. Thank yeah, you. thank you, Carrie. Anagarka Sarana. Hi. Um, yesterday I was having a conversation with a lady and she was telling me that she saw a Buddhist thing in Netflix for meditating. And I was like, okay, I don't know how Buddhist is it. But she gave me an example of one of the episodes she watched. 
and about a guy that was like the guy was eating and they had this rule that they need to eat it within an hour like they they can't uh, finish it earlier or you know take more time it has to be an hour and that in front of them they put him three bowls of ice cream and then the anxiety started to rise to arise because he knew that it wouldn't be enough like by the time he finished the meal the ice cream will already be like a shake or something else it wouldn't be an ice cream so in the documentary they portray us like spiders coming in and all this anxiety and I was like mm, it's so interesting like how is a self-created and self-fed kind of anxiety because of mm, um, having to accept the fact that you're not gonna eat an ice cream but a milkshake maybe no so it was interesting and then we were also talking about the the stories we tell of ourselves like and I think we concluded that whatever we think about ourselves um, may not be or is not reality and anyway it's not permanent and it's not ourselves so we were saying like because she says that she doesn't want to have children and I was like obviously I also don't want to but I've been observing my mind going into indulging into this identity of the woman who doesn't want to marry and have kids and <laughs> has all this maternal instinct no no you know because it's a very interesting identity to indulge in um so she was going into that place too but she, she was like when like I don't like kids she was saying mm -hmm. and but then she would be like around kids and realize it's not that bad you know like she can play with them maybe not with the same kind of angel that some people have and I also realized that, for example, in the party I went of my cousin, that she's 12, I was like socializing for a time with her friends that are around 12, 13. And I was like, you know, their talk, their conversation is kind of more wholesome instead of talking about alcohol and money and properties with the adults. I can just come with them and talk about <laughs> Disney movies or school or whatever, you know, whatever a 13-year-old girl likes. So it's like how um, obstructing can be to build a story about ourselves, like the woman who doesn't have any angel with kids and doesn't want to have kids and, you know, like that kind. And I was like, yeah, I kind of, we are kind of like um, questioning that ident that strong identity we build. And she said, yeah, when I question it, instead of thinking, I don't want to have kids, I, I say, I don't know. Mm. And I'm like, well, I do know I don't. <laughs> but, you know, I really question like my ability to really engage with kids and be patient with them. Like sometimes I can think like, oh, this four-year-old is being annoying. But that for you all is thinking, oh, she's being so boring. <laughs> so <laughs> how, to, how to manage that? How not to? You know, it's very sad that some people, some parents maybe give their kids the iPad or something to turn them off, you know, and not facing the reality that kids have that kind of come out being, uh, you know, wanting to play or stuff. Yes. So I'm like, yeah, we need to. Uh, it's good to learn to be together and yeah. <laughs> I think this idea of of questioning the the image we create of ourselves is important. And um, recognizing that you know, even if somebody, if even if a number of people reflect back to us a certain quality, you know, like you're the kind person or you're the um meticulous person or whatever, whatever it might be, right? You're the fun person, you know, like it's really valuable to notice that that's, that's one aspect, but that's not a self. That's not who we are. And to buy into any of it is suffering, good or bad. It, it, it adds up to um, an identity that is a burden. 
And so recognizing that we just keep kind of gradually turning things towards the positive, towards what's wholesome, towards what's good. It doesn't have to be showy, just, you know, virtuous and kind and generous and thoughtful, you know, and, and not, not even assume, not assume any of it as identity. We're directing a process. We're not perfecting an object. It's not like we're a, a, a stone to be carved into some beautiful sculpture that's going to last. It's not how it works. It's an ongoing shaping and forming. And with enough insight and wisdom, it kind of disappears completely. <laughs> Lisa? Thank you, Aya, for um, your talk. That's very helpful to me right now. I'm, I'm excited about moving, but um, feeling lonely about leaving friends behind and, um, and kind of feeling their loneliness when I contact them too. Is, but it's fascinating to, uh, to look at, as you mentioned, um, look at our thoughts and what kind of thoughts are feeding and fueling the, the dukkha. I mean, aloneness isn't necessarily dukkha, but how we turn it into something negative. Um, and I was just thinking as you were talking that I think one of my underlying recurring messages I give myself is not only um, self-criticism in a situation, I'm not qualified to have friends for whatever reason, but just a belief that it's impossible for anyone to connect. And I'm not sure where I got this, but it seems like a very fundamental <laughs> delusion that I have because um, of course it's not true, but I have this really um, deep kind of loneliness that, um, you know, I think part of it is just the assumption that having friends and being connected with people is sharing good times and um, joys. It's that's part of it, but also um, sharing uh, you know, difficulties and suffering can be a fundamental connection too. I, I was just thinking of a time when another time I was lonely in my life after a breakup of a relationship, and I used to. Um, I was in San Francisco at the time, I would ride my bike around and just look at people's faces just to kind of reinforce. I, I wasn't a practicing Buddhist at the time, but I think um, in retrospect, I was just looking for the fact that other people were lonely and suffering too. And somehow that was comforting to me mm -hmm. and um, alleviated my loneliness. So um, yeah, all these thoughts are coming up, but um, it's, uh, it, it's, it does bring insight to reflect on what kind of thought patterns you have that fuel the feelings. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. Yeah, it's interesting to, you know, when we realize what's really going on in our brain, in our mind. Um, bye, Carrie. <laughs> um, you know, to really, to really consider how much a, a recurring thought, like how hard it is or how, how hard it is to find friends at my age or in my situation or how hard it is for anybody to connect, this kind of stuff, really consider how these recurring thoughts limit our ability to do those very things. It just, it just, it, I, I really feel like you know, what we think and what we um, intend makes a difference in what we actually do, subtle things. Um, if, we, if we really recognize, if we have the attitude that, you know, maybe this thing that I'm going to do is hard, but that doesn't mean it can't be done. You know, um, I, can, I can find people of like mind I mean, here's a room full, 
if you're willing to call this a room <laughs> of, you know, 20 people. <laughs> and, you know, I can find people that share my interests, that share my, um, th that, that have the good qualities even that I aspire to have um, to bring into my life and to make connections with them. And if we think, well, you know, having, um, you know, making one connection is enough to start. And then there'll be more. You know, it's like, you know, instead of this idea of it's so hard, really, really noticing. Um, for a little while, I did some journalism work and when I needed to find something out, I figured if I just had one, one lead, one clue to find my way to um, uncovering this information about this, that would be enough. Because one, one lead leads to two or three more, and then you just keep going. And this is the way it is with, with developing our connections, too, I think keeping that positive outlook. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. Jules? Hi, um, I, I tend to think of myself as an introvert. So uh, I like solitude or I'm comfortable with solitude, but I do find I distract myself a lot in mm -hmm. solitude, especially in the evenings. And that's what I'm really struggling with because, you know, I think I'm just going to chill out a little bit. I'm going to watch a YouTube video. I'm going to scroll through. I'm going to surf the web a little bit, but I'll keep it short. And then I'll, you know, and then I'll go off and do other things. And then it's a couple hours later. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm, I, I, it's not exactly loneliness, but I think it's the, like, <coughs> trying to fill in your mind so you don't are, aren't thinking about other or, or I'm not sure see I have to clear it out in order to be know what it is that I'm avoiding mm -hmm. so what I did today is make a list of things I'm going to do today including the, and and I'm setting some things off to do in the evening so I'm going to do it then instead of the yeah. others the the YouTube net surfing things to mm -hmm. and um, just to give myself something else to do mm -hmm. that is more productive and but also like leaves my mind open yeah yeah, yeah. good yeah um, there's always listening to a Dhamma talk instead of the news or something like that you know too and yeah, it sounds good, Jules. Thank you. So I think it'd be a good time to do some meditation. Just find a comfortable position. Where your spine can be straight, but relaxed. And tune into the body and just notice how it feels right now. What information it has for us. And invite the body to become calm and relaxed. Take a few deep breaths. And then let the breathing become more natural, 
and be aware of breathing in and breathing out. Sometimes I say things like breathe into a particular part of the body. And what I mean by that is as you're breathing in, you let your mind go to maybe the center of your chest. And feel or notice the breath energy there. As if the in-breath is filling up that space. and relaxing even more as you exhale. Bring the breath energy to the belly. Breathing in, imagining the breath and the energy of the breath filling through the body to the belly, filling the whole belly area, stomach, abdomen. Breathing into that space and then as you exhale, relaxing, feeling. And see if you can do the same thing with your arms and hands. If you're breathing in, just with the mind going to your shoulders, down your arms, your hands, as if the breath is coming through there, filling that whole area of your arms and hands. And relaxing as you exhale. And of course, while I'm describing it, you might breathe two or three times into that space. This breath carries energy with it. In the Thai tradition, they'll call it the breath energy coming into the body. Also in the yoga tradition, you'll see a connection between the prana and the so breath, energy, and the body. And it's the mind that leads that energy. So it's our, it's our thoughts and how we're directing the mind to an area of the body. Now we can breathe into the lower part of our body everything below the waist, down through the legs and into the feet. And breathing into the whole area of the head above the shoulders. And then bringing it all together by breathing into the whole body. Just imagining the energy of the in-breath coming through the head, the shoulders, the arms, the torso, abdomen, legs, feet, everywhere. And 
And then with each in-breath and each out-breath, you feel the whole body breathing. Breathing in and relaxing and letting go, breathing out. Breathing in, energizing the body and breathing out, relaxing the whole body. And in this state of relaxation, paying attention to the breath and inviting the mind to become more calm. At home, here with the breath and the body. mind that is peaceful and at ease. your mind feels restless, then focus more on the out-breath, calming and relaxing. If the mind feels dull and sleepy or drowsy, focus on the in-breath, bringing in fresh energy. If the mind is free of restlessness and sluggishness, free of desire, free of aversion, free of doubt, wavering, then you can just reside happy in that freedom from obstacles. Let the mind be happy and at ease, resting in awareness, still present with each in-breath and each out-breath.
The sharing today reminded me of a beautiful simile that the Buddha used. Some of you might know this one. He talked, I think he was talking about anger and he talked about how some people get angry and they really stay angry for a long time. And some people get angry and it washes away. Um, and some people just get a flash of anger and it disappears almost immediately. And he compared that to uh, writing on rock. So if a person gets angry and they stay angry a long time, it's like etched in rock. And if a person gets angry and it dissipates, you know, in not too long a time, it's like writing in sand. And if a person has a flash of anger and then it's gone, it's like writing on water. And that idea that we can actually um, change our patterns, you know, so wherever that anger or any other kind of feeling comes from, whether it's coming from past conditioning, it's coming from past experience, whether it's physical or emotional, mental, it's all conditioning. We are a conditioned process. And if, if in this, it's in this moment that we have the option, if our tendency in the past is to hold on to it and as if it were written in stone, we can change that. And if our tendency is to hold on to it for a little while, but it's like written in sand and it eventually blows away, we can still change that. And if it's like water, we can even like let go sooner. You know, it's like we can tr train this process that we think of as ourselves. And, you know, really even use that image, let that feeling, whatever that feeling is, let it be on water let it go because it's, it's our mind that keeps it going, that etches it in deeper. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.